Good book to Isaiah 62. I will be reading from the tree of life. Isaiah 62, verses 1 through 12. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness shines out brightly and her salvation as a blazing torch. Nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name, which Adonai's mouth will bestow. You will also be a crown of beauty in the hand of Adonai and a royal diadem. No longer will you be turned, termed forsaken. No longer your land turned desolate. Instead, you will be called, my delight is in her and your land married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your sons will marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over a bride, so your God will rejoice over you. On your walls, Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All day and all night, they will never hold their peace. You, who remind Adonai, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Adonai has sworn by his right hand and by his strong arm, surely I will never again give you grain as food for your enemies nor will foreigners drink your new wine for which you have labored. But those who have garnered it will eat it and praise Adonai, and those who have garnered it will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, clear the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, Remove the stones, lift up a banner over the peoples. Behold, Adonai has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. See, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Then they will call them the holy people the redeemed of Adonai. And you will be called, sought out, a city not forgotten. Thank you, Paula. You know, it's uh, impossible sometimes to look at passages of Scripture that give you a, uh, a panorama of something that is way beyond you without being swept off your feet. You know, this is... Uh, and... Uh, you stand before these kinds of passages and uh, you say, Lord, whoa, give me eyes. And so I want to pause for a minute and uh, ask that the Lord would speak to us 
that each one of us would hear a specific message for who we are, where we are individually and also corporately, that we would hear the Word of God. Thank you, Lord God, that your Word is indeed alive and actively powerful and sharper than two-edged sword. And, uh, Lord, this is also a a word that boggles our mind and our natural understanding. And so we pray, Lord God, that your Ruach would give us the necessary understanding because spiritual truths are spiritually discerned. And so we ask for that. Uh, Lord God, take the scales off our eyes and cause us to see what you have in mind to say to us today, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Several months ago, um, we took Isaiah to uh, a local scouts, a scout troop, and um, after a while, it was my turn to um, to be the uh, not just the driver, but the one who comes and uh, participates. And um, I, I've never been to Scouts, and it was quite the experience, folks. Um, for starters, they they stand and they have the Scout salute. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how to make the scout salute. I wanted to do this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and my fingers just wouldn't cooperate, you know. And so, I, anyways, I've had some practice. I think I can do the scout salute. And, uh, you know, it, it felt like I was in a, in a different uh, culture, uh, they were speaking a language that I listened to and really didn't understand very well. And so for the first several weeks, um, I, su- I sat there not highly intelligently, uh, tr- trying not to look too stupid. And, uh, y- you know, what was really, what really stood out for me is here you have a number of men uh, their 40s to 60s, who devote themselves um, to see to it that these kids have healthy role models. Um, these are morally upright individuals, and especially in the neighborhood where we live, where I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, when we checked in Isaiah into his middle school, that one of the options under gender was other, male, female, other. And uh, I thought to myself, Sodom and Gomorrah, here we are. And yet, in the same neighborhood, folks, you have a group of people, a group of men, who give of themselves to these um, to these boys. And... Uh, what I found somewhat amusing is that part of the scout uh, oath, 
is uh, they they pronounce the following: "I will be reverent." And I'm sure the kids didn't really know what the word "reverent" meant. And so uh, the last time I was with with them, they invited me to be part of a board of review. You might say, what on earth is a board of review? Well, that's when you have two or three, actually three, three men who sit and evaluate um, one of the boys to see if they fulfill their requirement for the next level up. And so um, I, I just couldn't sit there and say nothing. So when the turn came for the young fellow to speak about being reverent, I had to pipe up and say, well, since I am a reverend, I think I can say something to that. And, uh, you know, what I had to say was not uh, the word of God per se. But, you know, for me, it spoke about simply about the fact that we live in a corrupt, in a broken world with a lot of darkness and we can choose to hide in in the huddle, in the holy huddle. And we can choose to be um, to walk around looking like the Pharisees did, you know, with sour expression, and uh, basically wait to say, "You generation of vipers," or we can be instruments of redemption. Because the Word of God tells us that where sin abounds, where there's a pile of sin, God's power and God's grace is able to be at work even more powerfully. We see that throughout Scripture. Of course, one of my favorite places for that is the city of Ephesus, where you had all kinds of idol worship. You had occult, and that's where the power of God broke in a big way. So we can look at society around us and and tend to dismiss it and say, "Okay, Lord, um, I am busy working on what you have given me to do in my little corner, and I'm waiting for you to beam me up. So beam me up, Lord." Or you can say, "God is able to reach people." in the midst of all of this and i want to be i want to be an agent of redemption i want to be an instrument that he can use to speak people to to people because reality is folks there are individuals out there who are hungry for what they don't know but they're hungry spiritually and we can be Available for, for God to work through us to impact those people. It all begins with the basic conviction of the sovereignty of God. Now, what does sovereignty mean? It means two things. First of all, God has a plan. Second of all, God has the power and the resources to get the job done. That has always been the case. That is the case now, it will always be the case. And you say amen to that. So you can approach it from a couple of ways, a couple of ditches actually. 
One that says, well, God has the power. He doesn't need me, so I'm going to go hide in the corner, just mind my own business. Or you, you can huff and puff and say, I'm the one doing it, and therefore I'm indispensable, which I hope no one here feels this way. Or we simply say, um, God wants and God needs me. I want to labor with him. And he is infinitely greater than what's going on out there, what's going on in here, and is able to use me to accomplish his purposes. And of course, one of the major reasons for us to think about those issues, because we are Yeshua Zion, salvation of Zion, is what God has in mind for the nation of Israel the restoration of Israel, and through Israel, the redemption of the world. Now, obviously, a major part of that has already happened because Yeshua, the, the greatest son of Israel, came and brought salvation. And a, a millions and millions of people from the nations and lesser extent also from Israel have received that salvation But God isn't done. God isn't done. He is at work, and I believe he is pulling out the stops. And Israel is a people's exhibit A for that. Just to kind of rewind the tapes a little bit, 150 years ago, Jewish people were scattered all over the world, in all the continents, probably not in Antarctica, but everywhere else. And Jewish people were chased from pillar to post, from one country to the other. And the land of Israel was desolate. It was systematically denuded. In other words, the Ottoman Turks came after 500 years or so and chopped down the trees. And um, the writer Mark Twain came in the 19th century, mid-19th century, as I recall, and he looked and he was disgusted. He basically wanted to write off what he saw because there was nothing to it. So that was about 150 years ago. At this point, Israel has Jewish people and Arabs and others from all over the world. They have Chinese Chinese Jews, you have Ethiopian Jews, um, you have Sudanese who have come to Israel as, um, as refugees, uh, uh, Muslim Sudanese. The land has blossomed. There are more trees in Israel now in, in 2015 than there were in 1915, which is not true of any country in the world, folks. And Israel has more per capita pat patents than any other country in the world. A bunch of the things that you and I use on, on a daily basis, technologically, have come from Israel. That's on one hand. On the other hand, Israel is, as you well know, positioned in a very nasty neighborhood, surrounded by unfriendlies, 650 million unfriendlies and also P 
people in the land themselves who are committed to terrorism. In lots of ways, Israel is a spiritual desert. Yes, you have hundreds of thousands of Orthodox Jews who are truly zealous for God. I mean, you listen to them, and it is amazing how much of a soft heart Orthodox Jewish people have uh, towards God. And, of course, the Messianic community has grown by leaps and bounds over the last 20 years. But still, it is a drop in a bucket. And so we have to look at what the Word of God tells us to understand God's plan and purpose, God's strategy, God's divine strategy. And what we see here is an exquisite picture of what God has in mind for what Israel will look like when God rolls up his sleeves and get to work, gets to work in, in a major way. And always, always, always begins with spiritual matter. You know, for us, it's exactly the opposite. When we think about God doing things, we expect that he will do miracles physically, that people will be healed, and, and that there will be all kinds of transformation physically. But the greatest miracle, folks, is for God, is when God gets a hold of people's hearts. That's the greatest miracle. And so that's the pattern, that's the template that we have in Scripture of how God works. Yes, he wants to do the entire enchilada, the entire picture, but it always has to begin with God getting a hold of people's hearts. As we recite each Shabbat from Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you will be clean. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to follow my decrees. And the Hebrew is very emphatic. It literally says, I will do and you will do. And we look at these statements and frankly, it's hard for us to get our arms around it. Let me just reread some of the statements that uh, Paula read or portions of it. It speaks about Israel's righteousness shining out like the dawn. Israel being a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand. A royal diadem in the hand of, in the hand of God. If you have been listening to the news the last several years, you know that Israel at this point is anything but um, considered to be a righteous nation and a splendor in the hand of God. Um, Europe in particular has um, is swept with propaganda that compares Israel to the Nazis. You see signs of that in the evangelical church today where there's an increase among fellow believers who are convinced that Israel uh, is an oppressive regime, an apartheid state. Again, God is perfect. God is righteous. None of us is. However, 
if you were to take Israel and compare it with Saudi Arabia, you would see that, that there is absolutely no, no comparison. Great deal of hypocrisy, great deal of false propaganda, and yet the Word of God tells us not that everything about Israel as it is right now will be validated because Israel is a state that is the state of men and it it has it does some things exquisitely well and it does some things that not so well folks don't understand what it's like to be in a position where you have hundreds of thousands of people who are not really thrilled to be part of your country. That when we celebrate Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Israel Independence Day, the Arabs in Israel and in the Palestinian ter territories call that Nachba, which means a day of catastrophe. And they refuse to sing the Israeli national anthem. They, they refuse to stand when the Israeli national anthem is sung. So you can understand how complicated all of that is. And yet, God understands all that. And God has a solution for all of that. And somehow, Almighty God, when he rolls up his sleeves and gets to work, Israel will, Israel's righteousness will shine like the dawn. That's not me saying it. It's what the Word of God says, that at some point when God is in, engaged in, in doing the work of redemption, you will not be hearing about BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, but you'll be hearing about Israel being an example of what God can do with people. And furthermore, Israel will be given a new name. I want you to pronounce it, please. Heftziba. Come on, let's get the Heftziba. All right, all together. Heftziba. There you go. Which means, um, my delight is in her. God's heart will no longer be grieved because of his people. And he will make all the negative propaganda go away. Why? Because he has somehow engaged in bringing about redemption to his people in such a way that the nations will look on Israel and they say, wow, Israel's God is incredible. See, that's really the plan, folks. It, it is not so much to make anybody look good. It is to make God look good. And, and it, this is particularly important for us because you look, you look at these verses and you think, well, that's very nice. At some point in the, uh, uh, in the next millennia or two, God will do what he will do. I will be long gone. But there are obviously significant applications for us here today, the year 2015, because it tells us that God lays out a template, a model for the rest of mankind.
And what it tells us is that he is a restorer. He takes junk, broken down houses, and he fixes them. You know, you sometimes see um, billboards saying, we'll buy cheap houses. And that's what God does. He takes the cheap, broken down houses, and he restores. He is a restoring God. That's who he is, folks. You look at me as if I, if I just landed from the moon. Uh, we have such a miserable, miserable opinion of who God is. We see him as, as primarily a God who is the judge. And yes, he is the judge. But he's first of all a merciful God. And that's what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. As Rabbi David and I have been sharing the word of God is God's mercy. And part of his mercy is his desire to take what is broken and repair it. True of Israel, true of you and I. And you know, we get banged up by our sin. We get banged up by other people's sin. And we go about life, sometimes skeptically, sometimes downright cynically, feeling like things will never really change. It will always continue the way they are. And then we have to stop and ask a basic question. Will, does God have the power, does God have the desire and the power to bring about restoration and redemption in our life? And if you look at what God has to say about the nation of Israel, and if you take it for good money, rather than just spiritualizing it, then the answer has to be an unequivocal yes. God is engaged in redemption and salvation. Period. For us as individuals, for us as a congregation, And our goal, our commitment, our objective as a congregational mishpacha is to be part of what God wants to do in the restoration of Israel. And on one level you say, who on earth are we to be able to make a difference? Well, the short version is nobody. Unless we place ourselves at God's feet and say, Lord, here am I. Here am I. The little old whatever that I am in the situation where you have placed me, you can make a difference in the lives of other people. People who are from the nations who are Gentile, people who are Jewish, whoever they are, we have a heart to see redemption come about in other people, because we know God wants to bring about redemption and restoration in our life. And folks, I know enough of the stories of many of us here today to know that there are all kinds of areas of brokenness in our lives that we have perhaps closed off to God or perhaps begun to open to God very gingerly as in, okay, Lord, 
if you really have to, then come in. I would rather have this area with the bugs and the cockroaches closed because I love it. Or perhaps we have experienced God coming in and bringing about redemption and restoration and healing. And we get that, how he does that for us, and we understand how he wants to do it for other people. And we make the extrapolation then of what he wants to do with Israel and all the other nations. Because this is who he is. This is who he is. Begins with a heart. Begins with you and I getting the fact that God is the redeemer and restorer and saying, God, I want to, op- I, I want to co- cooperate with you. I want to be part of your agenda. I want to be part of what you're doing. I, I, I want to be empowered by your ruach, by your spirit, and work with you in the area that you have given me, in the assignment that you have given me, because I have the joy of seeing how your kingdom is going to expand. And we understand that for ourselves, for other people. And we can extrapolate what God wants to do with Israel. And all of that, folks, is because we've seen what God does perhaps in small areas and we hold them up and say thank you Lord for those first fruits the good things the visible things we've seen and yes there's a bunch of stuff that still remains to be done that we're still waiting on God to do but we're able to take what he has done so far and say thank you Lord for the things that I can see that are visible and I hope if you're here today, that you're able to do that, that you're able to look at your life and point to something or some things in your life that are visible example of the redeeming power of God in your life and hold them as first fruits and say, Lord, thank you for that, and I'm expecting, I'm waiting in anticipation for what you're going to do in the rest of it. Why? Because I have invited you to be in charge. I have given you control, and I know who you are. A restoring God it has to begin here. And if you look at these kinds of passages and other passages, prophetic passages and others that speak about redemption, and you are cynical or unbelieving then let me encourage you today to stop and say god please forgive me i don't want to be cynical i don't want to live in unbelief i want to have my eyes open to see what it is that you want to do and i want to be part of it it's a choice it's a choice you and i can make hopefully we'll make this passage, in this passage, God speaks, first of all, about the heart, the righteousness. Then he speaks about the material blessings. Now look, look with me, if you would, at, at verse, verses 8 and 9. 
The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, never again will I give your grain as food, for your enemies never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. Now this is perhaps one of the strongest, most definitive statements about God's intent, his commitment that you find in all of Scripture. Because he's not just saying, this is what I'm going to do, but he's saying, I swear, I take an oath by myself. And then he states the following, I do it with my right hand, the hand of strength, and then by his mighty arm. So this is superlatives. He kind of adds on to this and says, I will see to it that never again you will be ripped off by your enemies and that you will enjoy the fruit of your labor. At the end of verse 9, those who harvest it will eat it and will praise the Lord. That's... That's the goal, folks. It's not for us to be fed and doing well, sitting pretty, but for us to enjoy God's blessing and praise the Lord and say, Lord, you're awesome. You took me from here and you brought me here. And furthermore, I want to be an example and a template to others of the redemption that you do. Now you say, okay, this is lovely has nothing to do with me, absolutely nothing to do with me. Because this is going to happen at some point in the future, I don't know when. And furthermore, I live in the real world where believers get diagnosed with cancer, where believers are struggling financially, where believers, where people have relationship issues. So is this another prosperity teaching? In other words, God wants you to succeed and be fat and happy and have a condo and veil and so on and so forth. Well, the answer is yes and no. Scripture promises to us that we will go through trials and we will suffer. You want to say, thank you. I really am not interested in that particular promise. Let's cut it out here and, and not include it in the Bible promise book. God promises to us that he will either allow or directly lead us into the desert. He led the people of Israel into the desert. He led Yeshua into the desert. God leads us in, into the desert situation sometimes. So the answer is no. God allows us to suffer, to go through trials, and that when it happens, we shouldn't look at ourselves and say, why, 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 why me? There is no answer to whys. That's on one hand. On the other hand, Scripture is very emphatic that God has all the resources, all the money, all the gold, all the resources, not for you and I to take and do with it whatever we feel like, but for us to take and invest it. Invest it 
in his work. So God is able to provide your needs so that you can be equipped to do what he's called you to do. It's a simple, simple, simple strategy, folks. If you don't have what you're supposed to have, how can you do what God has called you to do? You can't. One of my favorite scriptures in, in this regard is 2 Corinthians 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's the plan, folks. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, somehow God is able to see to it that your needs are met not just because you are cute and clever and his son and daughter, but because you need to have equipping, equipment, resources to do what he's called you to do. So in the meantime, if you find yourself not having all those resources, you wait and depend on God to bring them in. It's his problem, isn't it? I mean, I know this sounds very simple-minded here. But that's what the good book says. He's called us to do a work. We need to have resources. We don't have resources. We wait for God to bring those resources. Part of the picture of us engaging in the work of the kingdom of God is learning to pray. Now, why do I say learning to pray? I know folks here who have followed Yeshua for, for years and years and years. We don't know how to pray. We do not know how to pray. Yes, we, we pray when we're hurting, when we're desperate. You know, the... Um, Foxhole atheist kind of prayers, or maybe sometimes more. We have the attitude a lot of times that says, I'm a doer. I get things done. I'm a fixer. Somebody else needs to pray. When I hear that, folks, I get angry. I want to kick whoever says that. And yes, we're all busy. And yes, we're all under the gun in, in one way or another. And yes, we have, uh, uh, those of us who are parents have kids to take care of. Or um, older, older parents who are sick who need care. Or jobs that, where we find ourselves stressed. And on and on and on. Or... We say, God, I want to learn to pray. Would you teach me how to pray? And, and, and I hope I'm not stepping too harshly on bunions here. Notice I said harshly. I think part of the picture, folks, is we do not believe in the power of prayer. 
we have absolutely no clue what prayer can do. And we really don't understand why God wants us to pray. And this particular passage is mind-boggling. It really is mind-boggling when you think about it. Look at verses 6 to 7. You who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. Now, what does that mean? It means a couple of things. Part of it is that God has a plan. He has the power to get things done, but he will not get things done until people pray. Now, I don't know what, that, what it does for you. It kind of, it kind of rattles uh, my brain. Think of Daniel, for instance. God said, seven years will take place from the time you were exiled until you come back. Daniel sees that, and he goes into intensive prayer. And somehow God hears that, and somehow at the end of that, A declaration comes from King Cyrus, an absolute pagan, who says to the Jewish people, come back to your own land. And this is part of the picture here. Somehow God expects people to engage with him in his work through intercession. Those who call on the Lord, uh, the Hebrew there is not just call on the Lord, the Hebrew there is those who remind the Lord. Now, again, folks, this is hard to get our arms around, but it's counterintuitive. Why does God need to be reminded? He knows everything. But that's what the Word of God says. Remember, by the way, when Aaron, the high priest, went before the Lord, he had this ephod, this breast piece and shoulder a couple of big um, big gems on on each shoulder and they were to be a memorial a reminder for God when he went before the presence of God so we're not talking about God I'm hurting today I have a pain in my side would you please heal me or I don't have money to get from here to here we're talking about prayer that Hopefully, it's a little bit beyond that. Where we learn to pray, not just for for me and my needs, but for others. With the attitude that says, God, I trust you somehow that you will see to it that my needs will be taken care of. And yes, I will pray for them sometimes. But where I'm going to focus is not on me and my needs because you will take care of my needs. What did Yeshua say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness will be, ad- will be added to you. So we trust God and somehow recognize the fact that as we focus on his business and take care of his business, he'll take care of our business. Do you believe that? God has installed watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. And by the way, what's amazing, if you have 
been in tune with what's going on in Israel spiritually, you'll know that God has been, in fact, raising people uh, to position themselves close to the walls of Jerusalem to be praying. There's a whole mess of folks who are doing just that. Why? Because he wants it. Okay, well, what, what is the imagery, the, the, the picture? The, think about, and I know we don't live, Metro Denver is not surrounded by a wall, and ISIS is not coming at us yet. And so we don't need to have somebody delegated to stand on the walls because we, we have satellites and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but biblical times, you had the walls around the city, you had people stationed on the walls to look and see whether um, the army, your army was coming back and were successful, whether there was a messenger coming back and say there's trouble coming, or whether the enemy was coming. In other words, people who are who have spiritual discern discernment and understanding what's going on and are able to see beyond just the immediate what's taking place right here, right now, and are able to see what's going on, what God wants to do, and then stand there and pester God. Now, again, that doesn't make sense. God knows everything. He gives us what he thinks we need to, to have. Why do we need to pester him? Well, Yeshua tells us to do that in at least a couple of places where he says that we need to bang on, on the door, the heavenly door, until he opens the door. Not because he is cruel and is playing with us, but because this is part of our faith being stretched and our learning to trust God. And somehow, until we do that, the job doesn't get done. So we're talking about restoration. The restoration of Israel. And what that means is that God is inviting people to be part of the process. And you can look at that and say, who am I? You know, the, there's Michael over here. He is a prayer. Uh, there are other folks who are intercessors. Um, I pray, you know, Lord, uh, I'm getting started today. Uh, I've had a couple of rough days here. And so would you please sprinkle pixie dust and, and see to it that things are taken care of? Okay, do you want to stay in that state? Do you want to stay in that state or do you want to advance beyond that and grow into maturity and say, Lord, I want to, to know how to pray, how to lay hold of what you have in mind and advance not my agenda but your agenda. You need holy chutzpah and you, you, you can you can either say, you know, uh, select so and so and so and so over here. They're good people. They're good intercessors. Um, 
you know, I'll, I'll take care of the practical stuff. Yes and no. Practical stuff needs to be taken care of. Remember that God always begins with a heart, with the spiritual issues. If he doesn't have your heart, then he doesn't have anything that's worthwhile from you. Then he speaks to those who are willing, and he says, pass through, pass through the gates. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means, folks, that you have to be willing to go beyond the enclosure that you're in. The holy huddle, the messianic ghetto, whatever terms you want to use, you know, where where, where you have a... a uh, a believing dentist, a believing doctor, a, a believing hair hairdresser, uh, a believing etc. Uh, etc. Et Nothing wrong with that, unless we want to stay enclosed. The Word of God says, "Go out. Don't be perpetually inwardly focused." And and we as a congregation can do that. Or we can say, we want to go out. Yes, we, we have needs as a congregation, lots and lots and lots of needs, but we want to trust God that he will empower us to go beyond. Go through the gate. Go beyond. Trust God that whatever the needs are, that he will see that they're taken care of. It's a faith step. Go beyond. Prepare the way for the people. Why does the way need to be prepared? Well, you talk to enough Jewish people, for instance, and they will give you a very confused, very twisted idea of who Yeshua is. I went to a conference where a brother was sharing his testimony. He grew up in a Jewish household, and he was convinced that Jesus Christ was the son of Mr. and Mrs. Christ. That was the sum total of his knowledge of Yeshua. Not uh, terribly enlightened, but not terribly unusual. You talk to folks who are not believers, who are Gentiles, for instance, and what do they say about believers? Well, they sometimes tend to write us off as right-wing extremist nut jobs. Well, we may be that or not. That's really not the point. The point is not us. The point is Yeshua. And, and our willingness to go beyond, and we've been talking a lot about that, our willingness to go beyond the gates, to go through the gates means... We're willing to say, God, we want to engage with you in the work that you want to do out there. And yes, there are times you feel insecure because there are times you feel like, who am I? These people can, can uh, do rings around me intellectually and so on and so forth. The Word of God says, prepare the way. And the third component of that is raise a banner for the nations. What God does with Israel 
is a powerful statement, is, is a bold banner for what he wants to do with the other nations. But all of that is based on the simple reality. Am I going to trust God? Am I going to trust God? Or am I bound up in, tied up in knots with my current situation, with unbelief? And do I feel like nothing will change unless I make the change that God is interested in what's going on in Nigeria or in Syria or perhaps in Israel? But who am I? Who am I? And it's been said that the Amazon, I like to say, the Amazon as it comes down waters every single water lily in its path. And that's what the Lord does in his infinite mercy. He knows us, he understands us, he wants to see redemption take place in our life. In the areas where we have the needs so that then we can stand secure and say, okay, just as God, Lord, you did this with me, you're able to do that with folks around. And you're able to do that with the nation of Israel and with the nations in general. That's a choice. It's a choice we have to make to step out of the holy huddle, to be prepared to share the truth with God's earthly people, Israel, and with those from the nations whom God loves just as much. Let's pray. Lord, we stand amazed at who you are. We thank you, Lord God, that you invite us to be part of your redemptive plan and purpose. Thank you, Lord God, that you are at work both to will and to, to, will and to do your good pleasure. Thank you, Lord God, that your arm isn't shortened, that you cannot save. And Lord, we want to be part of that deliverance and salvation, not merely in our life and the life of our family and uh, the life of our congregational mishpacha, but in the life of others, Lord God, who are yet to come to know you. We pray for that, Lord God. We pray for your power to be unleashed we pray, Lord God, for eyes to see, Lord, what you have in mind and to engage under your instruction, Lord God, and, and have the joy of seeing your kingdom expand. Touch our hearts, we pray, Lord. Replace stony portions of unbelief with hearts of flesh, Lord, that are willing to trust you more fully. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.